The Black and Gold Banneret Podcast is brought to you by the Unger Real Estate Group, powered by EXP Realty, proudly serving Orange, Seminole, and Lake Counties. Call 407-790-9957 or visit WeSellOrlando.net. I'm so, uh, what's the word, uh, thankful, or I don't even know what it is, but you're pumping out a ton of content. It's great. I, it's draft time. That's why. <laughs> it's, uh, I, just, I just love the draft. I'm such a freaking nerd. I love the draft and I can't get enough of it. What's happening, Night fans? Welcome to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast, episode 101. My name is Jeff Sharon, along with Brian Murphy and Eric Lopez. Guys, I have to apologize to you. I forgot to mention that our last episode was episode number 100 of this podcast. So we had a big milestone that we set there that we just completely forgot about. Um, so I'm going to treat it the way like some really you know smart ass people tried to treat the year 2000 and the year 2001, saying we're not in the new millennium yet. The new millennium starts in 2001. So that's what we're doing here. the the second the the the, the important one is show number 101. So you guys are just going to have to deal with that. That's like that's like Bryce Harper celebrating a thousand hits. Like he's not going to celebrate that because he knows that bigger things are ahead of him. Yeah, darn so right, brother. That's exactly right. So we've got a lot to talk about here. NFL draft is going to be the big thing that we've got going on here tonight. Today, um, we'll review the four nights uh, school record tying four nights selected in the um, NFL draft. Um, We've got. Uh, we'll also look ahead to 2019. Which prospects do we think might be um, might, NFL scouts might be looking at in the upcoming season? We will uh, check in once again with baseball and softball, where we all owe apparently an apology to uh, Brian Murphy for hitting the panic right. button too early. Uh, and we will also um, and we also talk about uh, golf and tennis with, uh, so with a couple of those teams getting their spots in the NCAA. So. Lots to get to here on the show uh, on this episode. Uh, don't forget to uh, follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com where you can receive, where you can get uh, sign up for email notifications, get uh, all kinds of information, news and analysis on all your UCF sports. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook at black and gold er, at facebook.com slash black and gold banneret and follow us uh, on uh, Twitter at UCF underscore banneret. You can also hit me up individually at Jeff underscore Sharon. Follow Eric at Eric Lopez Elo and follow Brian at Spokes underscore Murphy and follow this podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and tune in. All right, boys, let's dive right in. 2018 NFL draft uh, for UCF and what a draft it was. Four nights get selected. uh, One of them, Mike Hughes, goes in the first round. Um, two of them go in the third round, Traquan Smith uh, to the Saints, Jordan Akins, who went way ahead of what we all predicted he, w- he would go, which, uh, you know, I'm happy where <laughs> I'm happy I'm, I was wrong about that. He goes to the Houston mm-hmm. Texans. Mike Hughes goes to the Minnesota Vikings. And of course, the highlight with uh, Shaquem Griffin um, going, I think, a little bit later than we thought, um, although maybe right around where we thought he would go in the fifth round. Uh, the big story, of course, he is rejoining his twin brother, Shaquille, with the Seattle Seahawks. So um, I guess we'll start with your uh, genuine impressions, you know, I mean, of the week. You know, like I said, this is a, um, 
Uh, this is a, 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 a school record-tying NFL draft. Four UCF Knights get selected, um, and, uh, and, it's, and that's a banner year for UCF in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was just pleased that, you know, the four we thought were going to get drafted got drafted. Right. Um, you know, obviously Jordan Aikens uh, was a big surprise to me and to many. I know there's a lot of people um, who said like, yeah, there was some mock drafts that had, had him in the third round and had him highly rated. I, I must have missed those. I saw a lot of others that had him, had him uh, later on being selected later on uh, in the sixth and seventh round. But obviously, you know, you know, in the NFL draft, it only takes one team. If one team likes you. It doesn't matter. But it was nice to see Mike Hughes um, in the first round. I had said that I thought he would drop to the second round because of his off-field issues at North Carolina, but he is a first-round talent. And there's no draft moment that will top what happened with Shaquem Griffin. I mean, it was just – it was perfect. So, yeah, UCF was a big story last week, and um, I think it's more of just a sign of things to come and where this program is headed. Eric? Yeah, well, I was excited as a Dolphin fan. It's the first draft that, that I've been actually happy with Miami Dolphins draft. So I was, uh, I was already, I was already enjoying the draft, which was very fun, actually, entertainment. I give ESPN credit uh, for their coverage leading into it. I thought uh, Kuiper, Mel Kuiper, by the way, was the guy who, in his mock draft, actually had Aikens going to the Jaguars. In the second round, late in the this late second round, which I remember that because people are like, "Is Mel Kiper lost his mind?" Um, and then he, I think, he tweaked it to the third round. But so he was the one that picked Aikens to go early. And his theory, I remember reading that, was, mm. and this is something that we all missed. And we should have thought about this. He go Aikens ends up going to the Texans. Bill O'Brien's the head coach. Mm-hmm. Who's one of the coaches that Bill O'Brien has ties to? That has ties to Jordan Aikens. Oh, well, George O'Leary. George O'Leary. Bingo. Bingo. And I think my guess is, and it was funny, the, now when Kuiper wrote it, he, he assumed that uh, the Jaguars with Doug Marone, and you know this, Jeff, because you've talked about this yeah. a lot of times. Who also Doug is Marone's connected with George O'Leary, by the way. Correct. So he his rationale was that O'Leary was going to was pushing for Aikens, who he recruited, by the way. Yeah. I do think George O'Leary had a big impact on this. And this is stuff you can't control as far as when you make picks and where they're going. If Bill O'Brien, I'm sure, I guarantee you, went at some point and talked to George O'Leary or somebody in O'Leary's staff that coached Aikens, and they sold him on Jordan Aikens. Um, and and when you, and, and and Brian, I think you tweeted about this when it ha- it just proves it, the thing that's hard about trying to mock these drafts. All it takes is one team to like you, and it doesn't matter. If they feel like very strongly about you. They'll take you yeah. even earlier than maybe quote unquote mock drafts are. And I think that's what happened here with Jordan. Is clearly. The Texans uh, have a really liked him a lot. I think the O'Leary staff pu- pushed him. I think George did. Um, and they're obviously not concerned about Jordan's injury. And I think it's a great spot for Jordan because what it tells me, I think he's got a chance to play and play right away in Houston, which is a pretty good situation when you consider you have DeAndre Hopkins outside at the wideout position. You got Will Fuller there. And, oh, by the way, you got Deshaun Watson coming back. I mean, that's a team that is honestly going to be a Super Bowl contender this upcoming year. And to think that highly of him to be a third, you know, third-round pick tells me that uh, I think Jordan Aikens is going to have a significant role on that team. Well, one of the quick – I'm sorry. There, uh, forgive me, space. Brian. I was, I was going to say one of the quick things that I just wanted to point out, too, about Aikens. There was a, a Houston beat writer – forgive me, I don't remember who it was – who said that uh, that the, the Texans were all in on Aikens early because they loved him in the senior bowl. And mm. that goes to show you, like, you know, what that can do for a player like Jordan. Go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry. 
Well, and not only is it, you know, good because he's because Jordan will be playing around so many dynamic offensive weapons, and really, if he is used in pass formations, he won't see many much attention. But the tight end position at Houston is wide open as well. I mean, Ryan Griffin's a good athlete, um, but after CJ Fedorowicz retired because of really so many concussions, one after another, um, they really don't have a tight end. They're going to say he's our guy. So it's a three man battle there, and I think Jordan will be involved. And um, you know, I, I don't think that position is given to anybody. So, yeah, I think Jordan's got a clean slate here. And if he shows out well, um, you might see him get, like you said, legitimate uh, and a lot of playing time early. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that Jordan's in a really good spot. I was really interested by the Saints nine picks earlier going in with Traquan Smith. And I think and there was some analysis that came out that said, well, you know, wow, this is a really crowded wide receiver crew. Um, out in um, down in New Orleans with Drew Brees, but actually, uh, I, I I did a little uh, research and I found out a couple things about the Saints situation. This is why I think Traquan might actually be in a pretty good spot himself. Um, he is uh, so right now. Three of the Saints receivers are all twenty five years old. Their fourth receiver is Ted Ginn Jr. and he's thirty three. He's under contract through 2020, but he's he's a pretty big cap hit. So, or, or he's he, he's making a pretty big salary. So, if you know, 33 years old, he's Ted Ginn Jr. Eric, you're a Dolphin fan. You know how you know what you get with Ted Ginn Jr. <laughs> and sometimes you know what you don't get with Ted Ginn yeah. Jr. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Saints move on from Ted Ginn Jr. during training camp and and stick Traquan in there right away. Or at least in the near future. I mean, who knows if it's this year or next year? But Maybe I think it's, it's soon, and year, I agree with but you. Soon, yeah, yeah, soon. I, I look, you, I look, I look. I'm, I'm going to be real. I'm in a keeper league. I have Michael Thomas as a keeper as wide receiver for the Saints. I've, I've had him mm-hmm. since I drafted him, so I follow that Saints receiving situation very closely. Trust me. Um, look, I agree with you. I, I, you know, it's funny. Everybody, obviously, Shaquem's gotten a lot of hype and everything. If you ask me right now who I think will be the most successful UCF player in this year's class in the NFL moving forward 10 years from now, I will say it's Traquan Smith. I think he is in a landed at a perfect spot. I think he could easily be the number two receiver there. Brandon Coleman's kind of been a bust since he's been there. He's a tall guy, nothing great. I'm with you. I don't think Ted Ginn's a long-term answer there either. Tommy Lee Lewis is just another guy. Um, and, and the way that Sean Payton has that system, you can be productive as a number two or number three receiver. And I think Traquan's a very good uh, route runner. We talked about this last week. I think Drew Brees, I think as long as he connects with Drew Brees, he'll be fine. What's interesting about the Saints offense, it's not the air it out 40, 50 times like it used to be in that Drew likes to dump the ball off a lot to Kamara. But there's a lot of weapons there. And I think Traquan Smith could be a really productive guy for the Saints immediately. Uh, and he could be a red zone target for them. Uh, they've used that, too, at times, where they've had those you know, Lance Moores types. Uh, Will- Sneed was a guy that was everybody thought was going to be a 1,000-yard receiver. as a number three receiver last year. He was a bust. He's gone. So I think Traquan is in that role where he's going to be the number two, number three receiver if he does his thing and stays healthy. And I think he's a sleeper guy. And I think he's going to have a nice career in New Orleans as long as Sean Payton and that offense is there. Because they're, every receiver there, if you're good enough, I think he'll be productive. Yeah, and I just follow up on that too. Like, First of all, there aren't many better coaches in the NFL who understand offense better than Sean Payton. 
And I know people want to say like he's lost a little bit off his fastball um, because the Saints haven't been as, as good as they have been in the past. Certainly won this won the Super Bowl um, back in uh, when was that? 2010. Um, yeah, I when they beat the Colts, right? 2000. Right. Although, look, they were one bonehead defensive back play away from being in the NFC title game this past. Absolutely. Year, right? I mean, this, the team is really good. The defense, like you said, the defense has improved, which has always been the key to this team. Like, if they have a good defense, that's going to be. If they have even an average defense, it's going to be good enough because this team can put up, put up points. Drew Brees is still, um, again, high quality quarterback. You know, and again, with this receiving core, you mentioned how Brandon Coleman, just at this point in his career, going into his fourth year, is really just a tall guy. It doesn't has done nothing. And then really, if you take out Ted Ginn, who's just a sort of a specialist deep threat guy who I really don't think um, is he's got some big numbers because a lot of that comes on one play and two plays a game. But Cameron Meredith is really they want him to be the number two receiver behind Michael Thomas, who was a stud. But Cameron Meredith coming is coming off an ACL tear that he suffered early last season or actually in the preseason last summer. He was, he was good on a bad Bears team in 2016 when Alshon Jeffrey was hurt there. But we don't know how well he's going to respond after this ACL tear. So, yeah, that, that, that wide receiving core is wide open. And I just think with, with Traquan's mix of, like, he's got tremendous ball uh, tracking ability. He skies over defenders. He's really safe anywhere on the field because you can just throw it to him wherever and he'll go get it. And his deep speed, uh, his ability to turn big plays out. Um, he's, he's a guy who can do a lot of things for this team, either out wide or in the slot. And I mean, if Brandon Coleman is going to be his competition for slot receiver and he was, and that was who they had, you know, slot receiving last year when Willie Sneed was out and now Willie Sneed's gone. If Brandon Coleman's the guy that, that's good, that's trying to keep him out from being a slot receiver, I, I think Traquan's got a good shot there. Cause I really think Traquan uh, could do a ton of damage inside. Well, Eric, Murph, you mentioned- Murph, yeah, let me ask you this, Murph. Yeah. I mean, this, I know this is more of a fantasy. Do you think he could be productive right away? Like, do you? I think he could be. I think he could yeah. be a guy that I wouldn't be surprised if he's one of those guys in his rookie year that maybe gets six, seven hundred yards and maybe seven, eight touchdowns and becomes kind of a Drew Brees touchdown target guy, kind of like Willie Sneed was or Lance Moore was before that. And you mentioned like also like tight ends are a big, big uh, weapon for this offense in the goal line area. Like even Kobe Fleener at Solson touchdowns. Remember Jeremy Shockey had some big years. They, they so Fleener's going to be cut here at some point. They re-signed Ben Watson, who's thirty-seven. He's basically their lead tight end now. Like they, so that just shows you like they have a lot of space here for guys who can be dynamic, uh, either in the middle of the twenties, between twenties, or in the goal line area. So I don't know about projections. I'm not going to say he's going to score seven or eight touchdowns. That's still quite a lot. But if you're in a, this is a fantasy moment for me. Yeah. If you're in like a if you're in like a deep dynasty league, um, I really like Traquan Smith. And I, I say that trying to rein in as much bias as I possess. I mean, I really want to be truthful and say, like, you look at the situation he's in, the amount of uh, expansion available in that receiving core and the qualities that Traquan's got both as a speed receiver and a really good safe target who can just bail you out if you just throw up to him one on one. Like he's got a lot of qualities that fit in this offense. And as long as Drew Brees is there, um, you know, receivers who get playing time are going to have value. So I think I'm not drafting in redraft leagues, but if you're in deep dynasty leagues, like I, I really do like Traquan Smith. Boy, we're just throwing fastballs right down the middle to you here, Murph, with the fantasy football talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, yeah. I want to talk about the, uh, the uh, obviously the two defensive guys. Mike Hughes goes in the first round uh, to Minnesota. 
Um, and a, a quick little analysis about that is that he, um, you know, he's uh, so. So last year, the Viking. We know how good the how good the Vikings defense was. Um, they were uh, second in the NFL in fewest pass yards allowed. Um, and uh, you know, we talk about you know Mike and how good he is on uh, special teams. Uh, they were eighth in punt return average, third in kickoff return average. Um, so he's so more or less Minnesota kind of strengthened their strengths here by picking Mike Hughes. Is he going to have? Uh, do do you see um, him fitting in in that spot, or is he going to have to really earn his way in? I mean, I know he's a first round pick; you expect him to contribute right away. But I mean, I think he's in a really good spot in a, you know in a with a team that, like I said, strengthened its strengths by drafting him. Well, here's the thing. You've got Xavier Rhodes as their top corner, Florida State yeah. kid. Uh, so he's the number one. The question, so the question is, and they drafted Mackenzie Alexander from Clemson, uh, who's really good too. So they've, I think it's those two. And then you got Trey Waynes, who's been there like a million years. Um, I think Terrence Newman. Or, I think Mike's going to have to work. I don't, you know, I think he, they're going to be very careful with him. Uh, there's a, they're deep at the secondary, uh, but he's going to have to work to get playing time. Right away. I mean, that doesn't mean he won't. I could see him getting some nickel coverage defensively. The other interesting thing about him is how do the Vikings, do the Vikings use him in special teams, right? Do they Now, the NFL, as of now, will looks like they will keep their kickoffs uh, in place, thankfully. God, common sense. Um, although with the NFL kickers the way there is, there's so many more touchbacks that it's not as big. I'm curious if they use him in the kick return or in the punt return game. They have Stacey Coley over there, former Hur- Miami Hurricane. So I'm very interested to see how they use him. I mean, obviously, they use, they spent a late first-round pick on him. Uh, so obviously, they have – and I think Wayne's getting up there in age. I would think Hughes is the heir apparent there. But he may not mm-hmm. make an immediate impact as far as a starter. I think he's more of a nickelback in his first year and then work his way into being a starter maybe a year or yeah. two from now. Yeah, Chris Carter actually um, actually tweeted out, you know, tremendous value and filled a huge need at nickel corner. With Mike yeah. Hughes, Kirk Cousins uh, actually chimed in right after Hughes was selected and said, uh, welcome to the team, yeah, Big Mikey, looking forward to competing in practice. So um, already they're pretty excited about uh, Mike Hughes up in um, Minnesota. And then, of course, you know, I, oh, go ahead. No, I'm just gonna go ahead. Chime, I was chiming here on, on, on uh, Mike as well. And I think Eric, I just wanted to put out to Eric there because I wanted him to basically say everything I'm going to say. And I'll just kind of fill in the holes. Um, because, uh, I, no, no, there's like, I'll just fill in the gaps. I just, I just want to fill in some things. Uh, so Trey Waynes isn't like really old. He's only 25. He's hitting into his fourth season. Um, but he just hasn't like, he hasn't been the sort of first round quality player. They thought they were getting back a few years ago. He's been really middling at best. Um, he, he just hasn't done much uh, at this point in his career. Terrence Newman is heading into his final season. It finally admitted that this will be his last season. He should not be an every down player. Um, and then, yeah, you've got, you've got the, the kid from Clemson, but with Xavier Rhodes basically locking down one side of the field, he's by far definitely one of the best uh, cover men in the business. The, the Vikings with this pick are just saying, wait, it's a passing league. And uh, you know, we're, we're in a division here with, uh, with Aaron Rodgers. Uh, we need to, to shore up as much as our, of our back end of our defense as possible and along, you know, and so I think they, they kind of look as, at Mike as sort of being like, yeah, we're definitely going to have him on the field uh, as, a, as a starting. I think he'll be a starting quarterback uh, right not right away, maybe not right away, but pretty soon and yeah. to have his ball skills, his cover skills, 
Um, the way he fights outside to have him and Xavier Rhodes on each corner, it's a that's a dang good pair up yeah. there in the back. So last but not least, Shaquem Griffin, uh, who is selected number 141 overall, fifth round uh, by the Seattle Seahawks. Um, he is, uh, I, I mean, w- what a position for him to go into, right? I mean, his brother's already there. Um, but, uh, you know, analyzing this from a football perspective, um, this, I don't, I really think that this could, po- this possibly is the best possible scenario that Shaquem could have gone into. Um, the reason why I say that is because, um, yeah, obviously they play a four three out there in Seattle. Pete Carroll has already gone on the record saying that he's going to play him at at linebacker, um, right, as specifically at the weak side linebacker spot, and he'll also contribute on special teams. Um, and um, one of the uh, it, it, one of the interesting things that I think that was that was particularly important for Seattle, you know, they they had a pretty good. Pretty good defense last year, 11th in the NFL in total defense, but they were 19th in rush defense. Um, And now you have this linebacking core. Um, Obviously, we know about Bobby Wagner in the middle, K.J. Wright, and and Barcavius Mingo right now are sort of slotted in as the starters in the depth chart at the moment. But Wagner is in this massive contract. It's four years, 43 mil, and it's through 2019. Wright is heading into a contract year where he's going to make $7.2 million on the outside. And then Mingo just signed a two-year deal with the Seahawks with an out after 2018. So that's both outside spots. Are You know, the Seahawks could move on from those guys, and, and you're replacing a guy who's making – you could let's say Wright decides to move on. You could replace a guy making $7.2 million with a rookie contract. Um, and the best part about this is he doesn't have to come in and – and play right away. He can play on special teams this year, be a backup linebacker. uh, And then once he grasps the system that Carroll runs, then once they decide to move on from one of those outside guys, then he can slip right into that spot. I think he's in the perfect spot in Seattle. What do you guys think? We'll start with you, Brian. I I think it's, well, obviously it's perfect because that's where he wanted to be. Like, on pro day and even after the combine when he talked about like i met with Pete carroll and told him i want you i wanted to play with for him and at the pro day when he said like yeah seattle's where i want to be because because that's where shaquille is and he likes Pete carroll and so yeah i think it's perfect in that this makes him very happy it makes everybody really happy it's a great story so the writers love it um I, look the seattle defense i mean it's it's it, you, it's no way of other no way else to put it other than they're going under a, a bit of a, a facelift here um, it's, a, it's not the same defense anymore that we remember from, you know, a few years ago when they were just locking kids down all over the place. I think, like, I think you said it right. I think he'll have to start out in a special teams reserve role, but, it, but the end, the end result here is going to be pretty simple. The end result is no matter what we project for Shaq Griffin or what anybody else says, he's going to overachieve it somehow like it doesn't matter what you say he'll probably overperform it in some pretty quick fashion because that's what he does like he's just going to get the most out of his ability that he possibly can and his influence and impact on that team in the locker room i know it's it's intangibles and people don't really like it because you can't really measure it you know as a metric but his voice and his energy 
uh, his persistence is going to feed that is going to make that team better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's cliche so, almost, but it's, it's true. It's just a fact. So yeah. Eric, what do you think? I will be the negative uh, party pooper. I Don't guess. You dare. Right <laughs> oh my God. So I, love it. I will be the, I will be the critic here and Brian kind of alluded to it. This team's in rebuild mode. They're in decline. Like that defense, the mm-hmm. Legion of Boom does not exist anymore. Richard Sherman's gone. Which will be, which puts a lot of pressure on Shaquille Griffin. He's going to start. He's got to be better than he was when he started late last year because he had some tough issues at times. He's got to play better. But here's my question to both of you: Are you really confident one year from now that Pete Carroll's still going to be around? Because I'm not. It's mm. a good question. If they go six and ten and seven and nine again, you think Pete's going to stick around for that? I don't. And if he leaves, that means you're start now. You're going to have a new coaching staff. You don't know what kind of scheme's going to be at. You're starting over if you're Shaquem Griffin. Now you're the guy that drafted you is not going to be there. I think there's a really strong possibility that that's going to happen because I think Seattle at best is the third best team in the NFC West coming into this year. I think the LA Rams are far superior unless Indomitian Sue just ruins that team like he does every team he's on. <laughs> Don't uh, rule it out. <laughs> true. And I think the 49ers, I'm on the 49er bandwagon with Garoppolo and, and, and company there. I think Seattle, you know, you mentioned the stats last year, but there were times that defense got torched. Mm-hmm. Um, and they looked old. I'm not convinced that Earl Thomas is going to be on that roster by opening day or Cam Chancellor. Who knows? I, I Look, is he going to get some opportunities? Yes, especially at special teams. You mentioned the linebacking situation there. I just don't know that that Seattle situation is very comfortable. I think it's a year-to-year thing there with Pete Carroll. I really do. I don't know because I think if they struggle again, if you're Pete Carroll, it's like, do I really want to stay through another seven and nine, six and ten? You know, people. You know, it, the NFL is very fickle that way. It reminds me a little bit of Tom Coughlin at the end with the Giants there, Jeff, where things just didn't turn around and. That's my concern there is I don't think that's a really solid footing situation. It might be good right now, but it could change real quick in the year, which tends to happen in the NFL. You might be right about that. Of course, on the other hand, you know, you, let's say that let's say that does come to pass. You could have a new coach that comes in and says, geez, these Griffin kids are all over the place. Um, you know, maybe maybe you maybe we'll hang on to them on defense because they're maybe. young and they're because they're young and they're around the ball constantly. At least that's my hope. Maybe, maybe, maybe so, maybe so. We'll see. Um, we'll see how he handles it. And I, I think he'll play some at the linebacker. I think you're, you're right. I think you nailed it. I think they're going to try and use him as a bit of a pass rusher at times, too. So I think they're going to use him around a little bit. We'll see, though. This is the NFL now. This is yeah. the big boy league. Uh, you know, you're going to take your lumps. I don't care who you are. So uh, I would just caution that. I would caution it uh, on that. I'm not saying that it's going to turn out bad, but everybody just assumes it's just like, going to be the Cinderella story and it's not necessarily I'm not convinced that Pete Carroll is going to be there long term and if he's not then you're starting over you might have a new defensive scheme it could change some things I will say this though I will pat myself on the back because I did ask this question a week ago and I I called it out and I said what are the chances he ends up in Seattle remember that and Murph to your credit I think you said it was a very 35 40 percent Jeff you scoffed at it I think I I felt all percent one in ten I will tell you the story. I felt once he got past the fourth round, I felt it was a lock. He was in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I feel. Yes. I felt the same way actually. When as it played out, I was like, it, the the longer it went, the more likely it yep. was that he would go to Seattle. And what was interesting, Adam Schefter even said afterwards that Seattle was the only team that talked to him in the combine, which I found which very. Is nuts. In- That's crazy to me. 
I believe he was always – I felt very strongly he was always going to end up in Seattle. I don't think he dropped – I know some people think he dropped and were nervous about him. Remember, and Brian knows this, he was projected originally, what, round three to five, three to – you know, four to six range. It's not mm-hmm. like – you know, it wasn't like he dropped. The drop would have been like if he was in the seventh round. Um, so, look, I think he – he took advantage of this situation like everybody did. Everybody, you know, I've seen some people think that the NFL used him. Oh, yeah, of course the NFL used him. Everybody used him on this, but he used everybody else. This worked out for everybody because this was yeah. the perfect draft. The first round sells itself, and Shaquem made people interested in the later half of the draft that normally people wouldn't be interested in. So I think TV expo- uh, used him for that. I think the NFL absolutely used him for that. And I think Shaquem in return used them. To market himself, he got himself a TV deal. He got a deal with not a TV deal, but a shoe deal, right? With Nike. Yeah, Nike. Um, he got a bunch. Of, he got a bunch of deals. Yeah, exactly. He got like six so, I mean, yeah. So from a, this was a business move for all parties on this. So congrats to everybody on this. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously he's paired up with Shaquille, and they both got to perform. And yeah. it'll be interesting to see what happens with Seattle because I think they're in decline, and I think there's. I would not be surprised if we get to week 11 or week 12 or week 13 and Adam Schefter starting to report on what Pete Carroll's future is in Seattle. Well, I mean, but, but for, the mean, for, for the time being, though, you know, every guy who goes into this always says the same thing, you know, and you guys have heard it all before. It's just all I want is a shot, right? Sure. And he's going to get his shot, you know, and if it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But at least – he's going to get that opportunity. I think that's the one thing that all these guys, you know, and, and that's good. This is true for UCF guys who have been drafted all, you know, going all the way back years and years, you know, even back into the nineties, uh, you know, when UCF was, you know, barely a division one school and you had one guy maybe going in the final day. Um, all these guys want is a shot. Now, speaking of guys who are, who might be getting a shot. So four UCF nights go this year. Um, which, by the way, like I mentioned, ties a record uh, for most nights drafted in an NFL year. By the way, you guys know what year uh, it's tied with? Oh, three, right? 2003. Can you name the four players who were drafted? Don't go snooping on Twitter because I tweeted it out. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, Jesus. Was Elton Patterson the- one of them? Elton, Elton Patterson, Patterson was one. Boy. Alex Haynes? No, Alex Haynes was not drafted. All right. I've See, got, that's because I wasn't cheating. I got him. <laughs> yeah, I got him for you. It's uh, Asante Samuel. Oh, yeah. I was say Asante. I thought he was later. I, thought, I was going to say Asante. Yeah, 2003. Doug Gabriel, who I remember was drafted oh, by yeah. the Raiders. And Mike Mabry, he's the guy that everyone forgets from that class. Mike mm-hmm. Mabry. I was good friends yeah. with Mike. Yeah, Mike right? Mabry. Mike Wait, maybe yeah. drafted in two thousand. In so you're saying that we've actually you're saying we've actually had NFL players drafted before this year is what you're telling me. Stunning, <laughs> isn't it? Well, I, I, ch- I mean, I'm blown away. <laughs> well, chances some are, of our audience may not be aware of that. Some right. of their audience might assume this is the first year we've had that, but we've yeah. actually produced NFL talent for years. But so um, so here's so here's the thing. Let's when the draft ends, of course, what do we do? We start throwing out our 2019 NFL mock drafts. Oh, and uh, and. And I have a thing on blackandgoldbanneret.com right now, which you can read right this moment, shameless plug, on which UCF Knights might go in the 2019 NFL draft. And the way I kind of arrange this is I kind of put it into three categories. All right. 
the first category is surefire guys. Like they're de- the, like from day one, the scouts are going to be looking at these guys. Are they definitely going to be drafted? No, but at least heading into the 2018 season, these are guys who everyone's going to be looking at. Like, okay, they're definitely prospects. Then there's the now or and by the way, they're all seniors. By the way. Then there's the now or never guys. And the now or never guys are seniors who, like, they've not quite produced to the level that would cause the scouts to, to look at them. But so it's, you know, like I said, it's now or never, right? And then there's, and then the third category is possible early entries. So uh, I'll read them off to you. For the surefire NFL draft prospects, I've got Pat Jasinski on, on the defensive side. Pat Jasinski and Titus Davis, the two linebackers. Two offensive linemen, Tyler Hudanik and uh, Wyatt Miller. Uh, I've got two DBs, Trey Neal and Kyle Gibson, and punter Mac Loudermilk. Uh, now or never, guys, we've got a bunch of guys on offense. Taj McGowan, the running back, Tristan Payton, the wide receiver, and another wide receiver, Cam Stewart, who I think is primed and ready for a big year. And then, um, and then we'll get to the early entries in a second. But I just want to ask you guys, you know, who do you think might be of the seniors right now, the top guy that if you're an NFL scout, you're looking at on the UCF roster right now? Well, I think for me, it's, it's Pat Jasinski. And I think you brought this up in your article, Jeff, but uh, it wasn't Shaquem Griffin who, uh, who led the Knights in tackles last year. It was Pat Jasinski. He's not a flashy player. Um, he's not a me guy. He's really quiet, really reserved, but he is, um, he is always around the ball. He has got a nose for the ball um, and a really good tackler, can shed blocks well, um, really commanded that defense. You know, if Shaquem was the, the out front guy, the, seen as the leader, um, Jasinski was sort of like the second, the other glue guy in that defense mm-hmm. at the linebacking court. And I think it's, it's somebody who, if he comes back as a healthy year, another, another big season with some big stats, he's going to really help himself. As, as just a, he's a guy who profiles like a, just a really safe, steady linebacker how about you eric i i like trey neal and kyle gibson I, ucf has a great we just mentioned you mentioned asante samuel mike hughes defensive backs ucf that's about as safe as it gets with ucf defensive backs uh and i think both of those guys if they have big years in their life, next in 20 you know coming up this upcoming year i think they'll move up in the draft i don't know where they get drafted but defensive backs are always needed especially in the nfl which is a passing league you know, I think Kyle Gibson will have a bigger role this upcoming year, and I think I think Trey. I've always been a fan of Trey. I think Trey obviously is a big play guy. I think he gets better. I think those are the two that I like a lot as far as if I had to pick from that senior class. Yeah, I like both of those guys too, Trey and Kyle. I didn't even realize like like Kyle Gibson was all over the football last year, yep. but the guy I really like, and I think he's primed and ready for a big year is Titus Davis, uh, the other linebacker on the other side. Um, first of all, he's, he's, he's massive. He's six, three, two forty eight, Um, and, uh, and he's wor- and he did his work on the other side of Shaquem. So now Shaquem's gone. And then he's going to be the prime guy to be there, to be the Knights, I think most dangerous weapon. He could cause some serious havoc in backfields this year. Now I'm going to change the question around to the third category, the possible early entries. I am not saying that these guys are surefire locks to leave early. But I've got three names that if, if the stars align and everything comes up, you know, aces for these guys, they might think about leaving early. And the three guys I have are Dredrick Snelson, 
Adrian Killens, and Mackenzie Milton. So I'll put this out to you guys, and Eric, I'll start with you. Of those three guys, who do you think is the most likely to have the kind of season that would cause him to, to leave early? I mean, that's kind of a trick. I don't like that question because it depends on the perspective, right? Well, like, I asked Smith. <laughs> well, no, like who would have thought like if we went, th- we did this a year ago, like who would have said that, you know, hey, Traquan Smith's going to be definitely leaving early. He's definitely going to be a third. Nobody would have said that for sure. Um, or that, you know, you would have had Jordan Aikens get drafted where he is. So it's just, it's hard. You don't know what injuries happen. You don't know what, you sure. know, guys come out of nowhere. I mean, Mike Hughes wasn't even on the UCF roster a year at this time last right. year. He was so, in, and he left um, early. <laughs> so. Right. So you don't know what impact the new guys are going to have on the roster and how that impacts playing time and, and things like that. I would say I just, just throw in a dart just based on history. If I had to say one of those guys, I would say it's Nelson because he's a wide receiver. And he's kind of, you know, if he's going to step into that Traquan role and he has a big year, I think he's more likely to maybe try to leave early uh, if he's, you know, from that standpoint, because he's a receiver and he might decide this is as high as my ceiling goes. I don't, you know, Adrian Killings is kind of a tiny guy. I don't see young small backs don't usually go early. So don't get, you know, that's not a good idea. And McKenzie's too small as well. So uh, unless you believe that McKenzie turns into like a Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns decide to draft him McKenzie next year because they just like to reach for quarterbacks early, (laughs) um, you know, (laughs) there's no reason. So I, I don't know. It's. By the way, how dumb are the Browns? I mean, can we just, <laughs> I mean, so seriously, we Baker could, Mayfield, like seriously, we could do a whole like, seriously, we could do a whole podcast on that separately, and I'll send it to some of my Cleveland Browns friends. But uh, in the meantime, but, but uh, uh, Brian, I'll go with you. Um, I, I'm thinking it would it would probably be Snelson. You know, I saw yeah, I, I saw yeah. this number. I think he scored. Uh, I think it was eight touchdowns last year. Five of them were in the final three games, and um, yeah, and obviously he benefited from Traquan being on the other side. But all of a sudden, everyone said, "Wow, Dredrick Snelson is just catching catching everything in sight." Um, are you thinking Snelson, or are you thinking one of the other guys? No, I agree with Eric, and I know we we should probably disagree. But if I'm being honest, like yeah, if you look at NFL potential, uh, Snelson is the most natural fit. Um, he's a big guy. I mean, he's a six foot, but he's a big guy. He's really well built. Yeah. And he's going to, he's, you know, with, with Traquan Smith gone, he's going to have one of those seasons where, you know, he is going to be the number one receiver. He's going to be the guy I think that Mackenzie Milton looks to the most. He's going to have one of those, you know, if you don't know, now you know sort of years, which is really going to elevate his stock. And like Eric said, like Mackenzie's really slight and, 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 and short. By NFL standards and and more so with Adrian, who, yes, he's electric. When you give him the open spaces, he's fantastic. And, you know, but not everyone is Jamal Charles. Like a a lot, there's not a Jamal Charles every time you pick a guy who's, you know, under five foot ten. And 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 these those really small scatbacks, they have a niche in the NFL. They certainly have a role in the NFL, especially as the NFL has sort of moved to a lot of like, you know, all running backs need to catch. And he can definitely do that. Um, but as far as like, I think the best NFL prototype pick out of those three, it's it's probably Nelson. Yeah. Well, here's the thing to keep in mind. Here's the thing to keep in mind when it comes 
I don't care how fast you are in college. When you get to the NFL, it's a different speed. Man. Yeah, everybody's it's a different fast. Game, <laughs> everybody's fast. It's not like college where maybe you know you're playing a defense that maybe three or four guys are maybe as fast as you are. Maybe NFL, everybody's fast. That's why you don't see in the NFL hardly ever a guy just break an eighty-yard run unless it's just one of those things. So, but uh, you know, so I, I think to me that's I, I would be surprised uh, from that standpoint. Uh, on the killings and, and, and even Milton from that standpoint. And that's one of the, you know, not to, I mean, and I'll give you credit on this one, Jeff. I'll give you credit on this because you were right on this and I was wrong on this. And this was about Johnny Manziel. Uh, we had this, me and Jeff had this argument a lot while when he came out, did we think he would translate to the NFL? You said no. You were very consistent. No. I was more the optimist on Manziel because uh, I thought, man, this guy's quick. He's this or that. And I will never forget. I watched his first preseason game when it was against the Lions. I remember I was watching the NFL Network, and I remember like like ten pl- five ten plays in, it came to me. It was like, oh my god, he is so small and mm-hmm. slower compared to everybody on this field. It's crazy. He's the same guy he was at A and M running over everybody, and yet here he is in the NFL, and he's smaller and he can't get past these pass rushers. Oh my god. That was my reaction, and at that point, I knew, uh-oh, he's not. This is not going to work. This is not going to work. And yeah. you were right, and I was wrong, and that's why the Cleveland Browns. Why? You're, and that's going to happen to Baker, make Baker Mayfield again. And that would be my uh, concern with quarterbacks that are not tall, or that you think they're fast in college and can get away. And trust me, it's a different game in the NFL. I think I found my new cell phone ring. It's going to be you saying I was right and you were wrong. Um, all right. Well, you can check that out on blackandgoldbanneret.com, preview of the 2019 draft. Congratulations to all the guys. Oh, and a little bit of um, news that we did want to uh, pass along also, and congratulations to the four so far UCF Knights who were picked up as undrafted free agents. Um, Aaron Evans, um, offensive lineman to the Philadelphia Eagles. Jordan Franks, uh, sign on with the Cincinnati Bengals. Tony Gerard will stay in the uh, Sunshine State. Uh, he will go to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Eric Lopez, Jemias Pittman, yep. for the time being, defensive lineman, is a Miami Dolphin. So Well, and, and I, I'm going to tell you something. Of those four, if you, I mean, does UCF guys actually have a good history of guys that go undrafted that end up doing well in yeah. the NFL? Uh, Jacoby Glenn, et cetera. I think Pittman's, if you, if you ask me about those four, who's the most likely to be successful? I think it's Pittman. The Dolphins need defensive line depth. They got rid of Ndamukong Sue. Cameron Wake is up there in age. I think Pittman's going to, has a chance to last there and, and be, you know, a, a kind of part of that rotation. Mm-hmm. So I think of those guys, I think he could be a guy. Don't be surprised if, you know, we're at week 10 or whatever. And you're like, wow, look at Pittman. He's making, he's, he's in, and he's in, he's playing like 15, 20 snaps and he's making a couple of plays. If he proves himself, uh, I would not be surprised if he makes that NFL team and, 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 you know, contributes to that team. You agree with that? I wholly, Brian? I, I, I wholly agree on that. He's the, he is the one guy out of that four who can really make an immediate impact. I think it's, yeah. I think it's almost a steal for the Dolphins. I thought Thank he was going to get drafted. I, I really did. I'm actually surprised he didn't get drafted. I'm glad that he get, he did sign up with the Dolphins. And congratulations to all those guys. Still waiting on maybe a few other guys to get some in, invitations. I, for example, I was uh, mentioning on social media. I hope that Shaquan Burkett does get a does get a chance with somebody along the line, but. Um, it's not. It's not over yet for any of those guys. So we'll just see. So, uh, like I said, um, find out what we're go thinking Dolphins. About, <laughs> find go. out what we're thinking yeah. about 2019 
on uh, blackandgoldbanneret.com. Uh, All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about baseball, we'll talk about softball, and uh, postseason time for tennis and golf, some uh, NCAA invitations being sent out. So uh, here we go uh, with that, and we've got plenty more coming here on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Stick around. We're back after this. The Black and Gold Banneret Podcast is brought to you by the Unger Real Estate Group, powered by EXP Realty. Sam Unger and his team proudly serve Orange, Seminole, and Lake Counties, specializing in buying, selling, and new construction. Sam is a proud UCF graduate, class of 2006, and he's such a dedicated Knight fan that right now, if you work with him as your realtor, he will donate a portion of his commission to the UCF Football Excellence Fund in your name. So if you're ready to buy a new home or sell your current home, upgrade or downsize, Sam and his team have you covered so you can find the right home at the right price in the right location. So give him a call right now at 407-790-9957. Again, that's 407-790-9957. Or visit on the web at WeSellOrlando.net. Again, that's WeSellOrlando.net. You can also reach them on Facebook at Facebook.com slash WeSellOrlando. Get in touch with the Unger Real Estate Group today and make finding your dream home a reality. Hello, Night Nation. I'm Andrew Fegley. And I'm Trey Strelko. Um, uh, um, where are we? This isn't our usual spot. It looks like we've landed in the Black and Gold Banneret podcast. Oh, yeah. I've, I've heard of those guys. You know, Nightline has UCF sports covered. Week in and week out, we bring you interviews with newsmakers and in-depth analysis of UCF sports. Subscribe to our weekly podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to Nightline on YouTube, like us on Facebook, Facebook and follow us on Twitter at UCF underscore Nightline. Trace, can we go back to the 1148 studios now and start working on our next all-new Nightline? How do we get out of here? Go Knights! Charge on. Now back to you guys in the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Jeff Sharon, Eric Lopez, Brian Murphy with you here. Uh, don't forget to follow us at blackandgoldbanneret.com, by the way. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Leave us a rating. Uh, let us know that you're listening. Uh, and tell your friends as well. Let us know uh, what you think about what we're doing. And uh, you can also send us uh, some information as well on social media. UCF underscore Banneret on Twitter. I'm at Jeff underscore Sharon. Uh, you can uh, hit up Eric at Eric Lopez Elo and Brian at Spokes underscore Murphy. All right. Let's get on with, uh, we just got done talking about NFL draft. Now let's get back. Let's get on with stuff that's actually happening at UCF now. Um, and we'll start with baseball. Right now, the um, the Knights are coming off a victory as we record this. Coming off of a uh, uh, a victory over Florida Atlantic. Uh, two to one in ten innings. Hard-earned victory over uh, an FAU team that's, uh, in, that's uh, top 30 RPI. Is that right, Brian? They were 31. Okay. They so, dropped a little bit. They were thirty-one. All right. So still, still. But a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, they were a couple of weeks ago. They were like seventeen. Okay. So so coming off of winning two out of three uh, against Wichita State, who's ranked number thirty in the country, you come in, you you stay home, you get FAU, mm-hmm. you beat them two to one in ten, um, and 
you head into this uh, series at Houston, this three-game set at Houston coming up this weekend, and uh, like, I, like we mentioned earlier, I, I guess I owe you an apology, Brian, because I was mashing, right. I was mashing the panic button last week. Um, I, will, I will mention that I wasn't the only one. Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, but have they figured something out here? Are they are they starting to pull things together as we're down to there's the Houston series and there's the Oklahoma series, the Tulane series, and then it's and then it's a AAC tournament time at the end of at the end of May here. So um your thoughts on this last stretch of the last four games. Uh well, I'll say it's better to win three out of four than lose three out of four. So that's some deep insight. <laughs> that I think is deserving, that's, deserving that's some, of the that's game. Some, that's some locker room level insight, right? There. I mean, I, I've been digging deep. I was out there today at practice, and Coach Lovelady said, "You know, it's better to win three out of four. I was like, "I'm going to write that down. I'm going to make <laughs> three that out my of lead. four ain't bad. I mean, it's it's <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, um, but yeah, you know, it's baseball. Like again, like I know I've been repeating myself, but like baseball is weird and full of vagaries and just sort of like you, you sort of ride along with it. And right now they're riding high. Like they, they put a lot of emphasis on winning this, this series against Wichita state last weekend. Uh, and especially after losing Saturday, just put the first two that Sunday came was, uh, I think one of, you know, I, I don't want to be too over the top and, and hyperbolic, but it was certainly one of the most important games of the season. To win that series, not only for the record, but for them mentally, they had come off a lot of a lot of conference series so far this year, where they left really feeling disappointed on Sunday. Um, they they have they've they've always won on Friday, and then they you probably split Saturday, and then there's been some series this year where they've lost Sunday, and they really were sick of it. Love Lady last week was just like I'm not having it, and so they they pulled it off, and then they come back and and uh, and the bullpen. I mean the bullpen game on Tuesday night against FAU. Louis Ferrer throws four innings of sparkling ball that Lovelady admitted today he did not expect uh, yeah, Ferrer to go four. It was and so and then they pick it up. Uh, the bullpen all the way through is fantastic, and they win in a walk off in ten. Um, and now, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot different than if they had lost two out of three to Wichita State and if they had lost last night. I mean, these how this is how slim the margins are between success and failure in baseball. Um, so now they're riding high. And it's a tremendous series this weekend. The final, really the final game out of state for UCF until a possible NCAA. And even though they might also be in a state then, but this is the last game they have out of state for the regular season in the AAC tournament, at least uh, at Houston, a team that sits atop the conference uh, as far as just, you know, they have the best record in the conference. They have won uh, seven consecutive conference games. They swept Wichita state at home or in Houston. They also swept East Carolina, who at the time was number seven and is now around number 12 or 13, depending on what you look at in the rankings. They swept East Carolina in Greenville. Uh, and over the last yeah. eight conference games, Houston has, not, has allowed, I think, 20 runs in the last eight conference games. The pitching has been phenomenal, and uh, UCF's going to put up with that this weekend. It's going to be really fun. UCF jumped six spots in the RPI this week from 41 mm-hmm. yep. To 35. And if you look at the top 35 in the RPI, these are the teams in the American that you have. You have UCF, USF, Wichita, East Carolina, UConn. So five teams mm-hmm. out of the American in the top 35 RPI. I guess we shouldn't be all that surprised considering how strong the conference really is this year. 
No, and, and let me tell no, you something. It, let me tell you. Let me let me let me say this. The league is currently the number four rated RPI. It was number three on Monday. It's number four. It's back and forth between the American and the ACC right now for the number three spot in the sport as far as the conference. This league is really good. And, and one of the things I will say that Brian's 100% right, and, and I give Brian credit because he's got the right perspective because I think sometimes what we do, Jeff, we try to treat this like football, and you can't. Um, the, 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 the margin for error in baseball, the gap between the best team and, say, the last place team is not that big. It's not like football where, you know, the best team like UCF against uh, uh, East Carolina, that's a 40, 50-point margin. That doesn't happen in baseball. I got a chance to watch Memphis at USF this past weekend when I was in Tampa with softball. That was a really good series. I watched the Saturday and Sunday game. Memphis is not – I know their record's terrible and all that. They're not that far off from a team like USF, who right now is the second best in the league. There was a one-run game on Sunday. Memphis beat them on Saturday. Jeff, you've covered that team and that league the last two years in the conference tournament. The difference between the top and the bottom in baseball is not that big, which is why, to Murph's point, it's so random. It could come down to a, a ball bouncing one way or hitting it at the wrong spot, or, you know, a pop-up, a bloop single here, a bloop single there. The, room, the margin for error is not that big, so you can't overreact to certain results. And here's the thing I'm going to say, Greg Lovelady, we're seeing the same. I think we're going to see the same thing we did last year. They played their best baseball down the stretch last year to win the regular season title. They came from behind. I don't think they're going to do that this year. I think Houston's too too good. But I think UCF's going to peak is peaking right now. And I think they're going to win enough games down the stretch here to get themselves into the field. And as a team, they've got a good resume. They have nine wins against the top 50, second most in the league behind Houston right now in 11. And, Actually, we have a clip. The guys that I defer, Brian Murphy's good friend from D1 Baseball, Aaron Fitt, Kendall Rogers, Mark Etheridge, they do a podcast on D1 Baseball. And they're telling you here on this clip, this, the American Conference is really good and could be easily a five to six bid league. Houston, South Florida, Connecticut, East Carolina, UCF would seem to me to be the safe teams. Now, last week, for what it's worth, we didn't have Houston in because the RPI still wasn't there. Uh, but they just went on the road and swept East Carolina. Now they've jumped to number 50 in the RPI. It's still a bubblish RPI. However, with a 13-5 and conference record, a two-game lead in the standings, 11 wins against the top 50 in the RPI, I think they're, they're pretty secure position given you know given their rpi yeah i think we've all discussed uh, over the last couple of weeks you know if you have if you have something like a, an rpi in the 50s you got to have something that that kind of cancels that out and and u of h seems to have uh, a couple of items there with the conference record up two games in the league uh, and that uh, 11 wins versus top 50 that's that's two things that cancel out that one that one item i think i have to agree i mean it's houston South Florida, UConn, East Carolina, and then UCF for me would be a bubble team. Agree. Yeah, UCF sitting at uh, right. six in the uh, conference right now with a nine and nine record. Uh, they're at Houston this weekend. That is a huge series for the Knights. Yeah, just to echo some of that and how strong the American is this year. So we talked about how uh, you know Wichita State, for example, UCF just took two out of three from eighteenth um, in the RPI. They are, if you look at the American standings, this is astonishing to me. They are 28 and 14 overall, but they're 5 and 10 in the American. They're second to last. And they're only three games up on Memphis, who's, who's last in the conference right now. 
at two and thirteen. UCF right now is at nine and nine in the league, thirty and fifteen overall. They're one of only two teams in the league who've won thirty games at this point. ECU being the other one, and UCF is four games back of Houston for first place. So, um, and obviously you're going there. You, you, you know, with, with Houston coming up, you got uh, you got three games with them. Uh, on the schedule here coming up uh, this uh, weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, Brian, what's the outlook right now with this Houston team? Because, um, you know, they, they've had some up and down years here and there, but, but they've been very consistent of late as, uh, you know, being on the other, uh, being on that side of the conference. I feel like this has kind of been an unheralded school in the last few years in American baseball, but... Um, What's the situation for UCF with this uh, with this series coming up against Houston? Well, it's it's a it's a difficult team with Houston just because of what they can do to you on the mound. I mean, their top two starters, uh, Trey Cumbie, was fantastic last year. Yeah, he's had a good year. He's had a good year this year, a three a three six four ERA, but eighty four strikeouts and only fifteen walks and seventy one and a third, seventy one and two thirds. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, opponent's batting average for Trey Cumbie has been 199. And then you look at Aaron Fletcher, who is making a case to be the conference pitcher of the year. 71 and two-thirds innings, 12 walks, and an ERA of 151. Um, Those two guys have really been phenomenal for this team. It's not the best offensive team in the world, but when you've got pitching like that, you don't have to be. And to sort of follow up also on like what Eric said about we can't treat this like football because small things – can change baseball, you know, outlooks, just small little things. So I ta- I'd said that, you know, Houston has won seven straight conference games. They beat Tulane, then they had three against ECU and three against Wichita State. Every single one of those seven games were decided by once. So a hit here or, or a less hit here, and we're talking about a completely different scenario, but this is, this is baseball. It's, yeah. It really comes down to one or two plays. So uh, these games will be, um, and you can watch the uh, Saturday and Sunday games. Friday is seven thirty Eastern. Saturday seven thirty Eastern. Sunday two p.m. Eastern. Uh, out in uh, out in Houston, and then there's another Tuesday game against FAU. But this one's down in Boca, six thirty p.m. on Tuesday. By, so by uh, the, go ahead. By Eric. the way, we're, we're, we haven't brought up we haven't brought up the uh, the underlining storyline in this series. You know who the pitching coach is at Houston, right? <laughs> yes, we, yes, we yes. We brought that up. That's right. Our good friend Terry Rooney. That's right. What is it about this league? We faced Donnie Jones in men's basketball. Now we're facing Terry Rooney. But this is the first time that Terry's going to face UCF since, obviously, his departure from UCF. He was he went to Alabama, ironically, uh, to be the pitching coach there for a year. And then after the head coach is fired at Alabama, he became the interim coach. Then they hired a new coach. He's in his first year at Houston as the pitching coach, which is ironic. Because anybody that's followed this uh, the, the program, there was a couple years ago where Houston and UCF had a kind of heated words a couple years, and Rooney was involved in that with the Houston head coach, and yeah, there was, was no there love any, lost. Was there any school that did not have a sort of heated <laughs> relationship with Terry Rooney when he was at UCF? I mean, he managed to tick off Pete Dunn, of all people, who he coached under for how many years at Stetson? <laughs> No, it is. It's it's wild. So it's funny that he will be he's now in Houston um, and coaching there. And look, I mean, they're doing very good over there. It's just interesting, right? Because I feel like obviously the fans' perspective is it's all negative, right, on Terry uh, because how things ended. The the program wasn't what it was the last few years. And 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 Jeff, I don't know what you think about this. And Murph, you could chime in as well. I mean, I think back to the 2012 regional in Coral Gables. 
where UCF that was probably arguably on the on on paper the best UCF team ever. Certainly the 01 team is right there, but I mean you look at that roster in 2012, and they were one win away from that super regional. They were facing Stony Brook, a very good team, but it was still Stony Brook. You're in Miami, and uh, Eric Skoglin, as a matter of fact, the youngster was got the start in that Sunday night. UCF lost both games. They lost the Sunday game. They lost the Monday night game with Brian Atkins and Stony Brook not only advanced to the Super Regional, but then they upset LSU in LSU and advanced to the the College World Series. I think that was the turning point in the Rooney era. If they win that region, I think Terry, I think it's a completely different program, and it's maybe Terry's still the head coach, but when they lost that, the program, in my opinion, for whatever the reason, just wasn't the same, and they hit decline from that point on. Because he was up until that point, I mean, they had made the NCAA tournament the year before after a, a few years drought, and they had a really loaded roster. And I, to me, that's what I'll always think about when I think about the Terry Rooney era. I will think about what Cam Gellinger said uh, in the media day. It was actually uh, um, Greg Lovelady's first media day at UCF Baseball where he threw some shade at Terry Rooney talking about how uh, no more – what was the quote, Murph? Do you remember this? Something, something like something about no more fake energy around here, or something like that. Yeah, fake. Yeah, fake. Fake hustle. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I gotta, it was. I, I gotta look this up. <laughs> fake energy. I gotta see if I can find the thing. Um, well, the, yeah. I'll, I'll stall for time. I'll, I'll stall for time if you want to find it. I've got. I, I've got it. I got it. It's uh, okay. this is from Luis Torres of the Orlando Sentinel. Uh, he said he being Rooney. Uh, Rooney wanted to have a lot of energy and it was a lot of fake energy. He was trying to get us to be very emotional at the wrong times, end quote. That's about Terry Rooney. Cam Gellinger, everybody. But, uh, oh, boy! But, you, but I, I see where he's... I saw where he was coming from. Yeah, and, I, you know, I like Terry. He was always kind to me. Um, you know, and, and obviously there were a lot of good things that he did at UCF, but I, I just felt like it was... He was grading on the program for a while, and a, and a change was needed, and the change happened. Don't you think? So I mean, what, what, everybody what do you, wins. Don't you think, though? But don't you? Do you think it would have been different if he wins that regional? You know, it's I mean, hard. You, know, to, you, you it's, love the what if game. You love the what if game. What if UCF would have had one? I'm what, in, won that regional. I'm inclined to say. Advanced. I'm inclined to say no. Okay. Because I feel like the 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 style that he had, it, it, everything would have frayed just as quickly. Okay. And it did. So, um, well, and some of course, people, I, and I some reserve people the right to be wrong some, on that. <laughs> well, no, and to your, I mean, people that will back you will say that some people think that what really kind of was starting to decline was Cliff Godwin was his assistant left to go to be at Ole Miss to be mm-hmm. the assistant coach there and the hitting coach there. And that's where the, the, the recruiting kind of took a hit. And now Cliff's the head coach Cliff, in East Carolina. Is, yeah. Yeah. And he, a took, great job there, so. and he took Jeff Palumbo with him, too, who was also an assistant yeah. coach yeah. at UCF, too, under yeah. Rooney. So. Um, and now look at East Carolina where they are. So, all right. So, so UCF does have these three games at Houston. It should be fun. It should be interesting. I don't think Terry Rooney's going to get into a shouting match with anybody this time around, but you never know. So, uh, <laughs> it wouldn't you, even be great. Yeah, it wouldn't it be great. Well, we'll have the chance to watch the games on Saturday and Sunday. So maybe we can watch. There's a link up on. Where am I? Uh, where are we watching this? Where, the, where can we watch? UHCougars.com. UHCougars.com. So, uh, oh, by the way, the Friday game is actually televised on the American Digital Network. I should mention yeah, that as yeah. well. So Friday, yeah. 730 on the American Digital Network. 
and then Saturday and Sunday on uh, UHCougars.com. All right, so let's switch over to softball, where, uh, you know, like I said like last week, you know, I was hitting the panic button once again on softball. Eric, you were, unlike Brian, however, you were with me on hitting the panic button on UCF softball. Right now they're at 31 and 21, 9 and 9 in the league. Um, and uh, coming off this past weekend, um, uh, losing two out of three um, against uh, against South Florida um, at South Florida. We know how good USF is. Uh, you know, obviously good for UCF to get one of those to get one of those three uh, in the middle game. But uh, but you know, as of right now, um, what's the status of UCF softball as they head into a senior weekend? Because this is it. This weekend uh, against East Carolina at home, senior weekend. It's the conclusion of the regular season. Um, What's the story for this team coming into this weekend? Well, I think they played well the last weekend. I know the result wasn't what they wanted, and certainly a rivalry is the first time USF has won that series since they joined the American Conference in 2014. But, I, you know, and again, I, I, I will, as Brian has said for weeks, softball is no different than baseball. You know, that was an even series. Um, you know, I think back to the Sunday game, a 2-1 to one game. Cassidy Brewer crushes two balls to left field that on – if, if, if it was any other stadium, that ball is gone, and we're having a different story. Instead, it was allowed, hit, hit it to a warning track power for an outs. It's that, just a bloop single here, you know, it, it's that different. It was an even series. Uh, really, UCF had two bad innings the whole weekend. Unfortunately, it was a four-run second inning on Friday, and there was a two-run first inning on Sunday, and that was the difference. But it was a very even series. I thought it was well played. Two very good teams. Uh, very high level softball, and you know credit to USF. They they had you know made one more play. You know it's that different. The narrow was it was very much. If this was a boxing fight, it was probably going to be a 115-114 score. You know, so now uh, you you I thought they played well. I thought there were some good things, and I think you got to build on that going into this weekend. You've got an East Carolina team that's very talented. You look at this league. The American is the fourth rated conference in softball. UCF right now this weekend, Jeff, can finish anywhere between second and seventh. That's how tight this league is right now Uh, and how deep this league is. And it's unfortunate that there are people in high networks that cover softball that don't acknowledge that because all they do is spend time talking about the top of the SEC conference and the Pac-12. Hang on Uh, a second. I I think I just – I know it's nighttime when we're recording this, but I think I just saw some shade out here being thrown by Eric Lopez. I'm just throwing it out there. There's some good softball outside of the SEC or the Pac-12, you know. If, if you know, feel free to talk about other leagues and that's my point. <laughs> the American Conference is the fourth best league. It's better than the Big 10. It's better than the ACC. The numbers back that up. Um, but yet there's that perception that softball people for some reason just ignore. But nonetheless, so this is a very tough league and East Carolina is very good. Uh, I think this is when we get into Tampa next week for the conference tournament. I don't think seedings matter. Uh, I think anybody can beat anybody. I think there's about six teams, maybe seven, that could win three games and win the conference tournament next week. That's how deep this league is. I think it's a league that should be a four to five bid league. I don't know if it'll get that, but it should be. Um, and look, for UCF, they just got to build on momentum and try to get some wins and get some momentum going into Tampa next week. I think they played well last weekend. I think they, the fact they played three games in that stadium will help them. I think that stadium fits their team. Uh, I think it was good for everybody to get some games in there. And, and it's just a matter of 
finishing strong here. You're, you're playing for two seniors and Courtney Roden and Megan Greenwell. That's always emotional. Uh, they'll be emotional on Sunday. And, and also our team manager, Samuel uh, SJ, who they call uh, Samuel, who's been there since 2016, the best team manager in the history of that program has done beyond. He's just, he's a great kid. He's going to be smart. Uh, the only negative on him is he's a Red Sox fan, but that's, you know, whatever <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, so it's going to be emotional. It's going to be some good people there, some good people. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I, I always have mixed feelings on senior weekends because it's, it's, it's time to celebrate, but you're also sad in a way because it's the last, the ending of the season to some extent, and you're going to, it's the last home games and it's the last home games for specific players. Like in this case, Courtney and, uh, Megan. So I think if they can finish strong here and then have a strong showing in the conference tournament, they're going to be in the conversation. If someone told me in the, in the sport, here's the, th- uh, you know, think about this. And this is why, you know, you're a big numbers guy, Jeff. I'm not. And right. this is why. UCF's RPI is 61, okay? And somebody that actually I talked to someone that knows about RPIs and studies it. They told me that if you take away the Princeton loss and the Western Carolina loss, this team would be in the 40s right now in RPI. That's how mm. close, how narrow the margin is, you know. And this team has a heck of a resume with wins over Florida, Long Beach State, Hofstra. They've beaten Tulsa three times. They won two games at Houston. They won at USF. They have a good resume. And sometimes people get sucked in, and committees do, in watching just RPI numbers. Like Wichita State in baseball is the perfect example. They have a great RPI 19, but I was talking to Murph. We don't really know how good this team are because if you look at the resume, they don't really have that, wow, marquee wins that you would think from a team that has a top 20 RPI. They have a very good schedule, and you can manipulate numbers a certain way. So I think sometimes we got to look at can you beat teams? Are you capable of beating teams? And this team has proven that. Now, yeah. that being said, you got to win games down the stretch here also, and they need to do that this weekend against a very talented East Carolina team that's playing their best softball right now. They're young. they got two. They got a great power hitter, and uh, it should be an interesting series and a good prelude to uh, the American Conference Championship uh, next week in Tampa. Yeah, it's now or never with this series against East Carolina. And just to give you an idea on that RPI number you were talking about, uh, was it Princeton and Western Carolina you said? Yeah, Princeton was Princeton's RPI is two fifty four, Western yeah. Carolina's is two oh nine. So I, I certainly there, there's yeah I, I see what they're saying where where they're talking about how that would be yeah. um, that's what hurt him. That that's what hurt him. That's that, really that's what, hurt him. what hurt him. And that's the, what hurt him. And the margin for error within the conference is so thin. You know, we talk about UCF right now at nine and nine, thirty one and twenty one. There are. Um, Six of the eight teams in the American have at least 28 wins. Um, and you look at UCF at 9-9, nine and nine, they're in fifth. Um, USF is in first at 12-6, and six, so UCF is three games back. Um, is in fifth place, but three games back of the leaders. Yeah. So, and they're playing an ECU team that's 23-28, and 8-10. Eight and 10. They're one of two teams that have a losing record in the American. UConn being the other. See, that was the other one that hurt was those UConn games. Uh, the because sure. the, UConn right now is bringing up the rear at four and 14, 19 and 32 overall. But they beat A&M. They beat A&M. They beat, look, it's funny. Yeah, it, we, but we have, so we, we, they we, beat we A&M, and you know, they beat A&M. Yeah. You know, UCF beats them, takes care of business as, you know, as, well, what should have happened with with regards to Mother Nature and all that. But um, it's just it's just a real bummer. But, you know, now is your chance if you're, if you're UCF, sure. you know, Close the deal. Sweep ECU at home, yeah, and then sh- and then and games. then got to win games in the American. So, listen, 
this is the thing. They're literally three swings away from being in first place, if you think about it. Yeah. They, they, the two walk-offs against Wichita State, they were one base hit away from taking the lead against USF on Sunday. They're three swings away from being in first place. That's how narrow the margin. To go back to Brian's point that he's been saying for weeks, that's how narrow the difference is in baseball and softball. It's that narrow. It's not like football or even basketball where talent, there's gaps. There's the gap. There's parity in baseball and softball way more parity than there is in football and basketball. That's why you can't, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you have to be even keel like Murph is. You can't overreact because it's just, the sport will drive you nuts. It just does. Uh, you could pitch this, you know, one day awesome. And then a bloop single beats you. And at the same time you may, you know, just, it's a crazy sport, man. It's a crazy, yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable. You just never know what happens on a given day. And that's the, the, the pure attractiveness of both baseball and softball. You, you never know what you're going to see or get when you show up uh, on a given day. Yeah, well, this is their last chance to see UCF softball this year. As uh, I praise you enough, Murph. <laughs> oh man, we're just how patting much do I owe you? How much do I owe you? We're just patting uh, one another's backs around here. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm starting. You could say it. that. You could say that, or you could watch Pulp Fiction and and take it another way. <laughs> May uh, <laughs> oh boy, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, free. <laughs> as I try to restore order on this podcast. Friday, Saturday, Sunday for UCF against East Carolina. Friday, 5.30, uh, Saturday at 2, and then Senior Day Sunday at noon. You can watch all three of those games with Eric Lopez on the call uh, at com. And, oh, by the way, Eric, I will be doing PA on Sunday. Oh! So I will be there on Sunday for uh, for Senior Day. So um, And that should be fun. And then we head into uh, the American Athletic Conference Tournament Thursday through Saturday. That's May 10th, 11th, and 12th in Tampa. So mark your calendars for that. All right. A couple little news uh, bits that I wanted to uh, pass along here about golf and tennis. Uh, First of all, women's tennis. At-large bid to the NCAA championships. They're ranked number 22 in the country. They are a number two seed, and they are headed to the Coral Gables Regional. They will face three third-seeded FIU on May 11th in the first round. Um, Brian Canico, Eric Lopez, uh, getting the job done. UCF finished the season 19 and four, five and one in the conference in the 64 team field. FIU very good this year, 17 and two. They've won. They won all six of their matches in Conference USA. Um, they have the uh, number 10-ranked player in ITA singles in Andrea Lazaro um, and uh, the number 19 doubles team in the country, although UCF defeated FIU back on March the 30th, so it's going to be a, a, uh, a rematch uh, between these two from that. Uh, winner of that match plays the winner of LIU Brooklyn and the number 16 overall seed Miami. Uh, so keep an eye on that at UCFKnights.com. First time uh, since 2002 making the right. tournament, Jeff. 16 years. That's right. Amazing job for Brian Koneko in his second year. Congrats to him. Congrats to John Roddick, who is the director of tennis, who hired Brian Koneko. Uh, amazing. Amazing to see that women's tennis is in the NCAA tournament. Uh, first time in 16 years. I think it's the story. Personally, I think it's the story of the spring year in UCF. Um, and maybe you could even argue maybe the, the biggest non-football story of the year. If we look back on it, we'll yeah. see how things play out within the spring sports. But I think women's tennis has got to be right up there 
as one of the top stories of the year when you think of UCF Athletics and the job that Brian Koneko has done is incredible with that young roster and exciting, exciting to see them in the field of in the field for the women's NCAA yeah. tournament. By the way, men's tennis, they were right on the bubble. They were right on the bubble for the NCAA, but uh, they end up getting left out of the field with 11-10 and 10 overall record, but they played a murderer's row of schedule. Um, a real bummer for, uh, for UCF at that point. But, um, but again, um, this, is a, this is a squad that's still trying to find its footing in, after year two of the new coach. So um, congratulations to them on a job well done this year. And uh, Very young roster, too, by the way. Young roster. roster. Yeah. We had John on on the show, and he talked about it. it's a very young roster. So I, I think the future is very bright. And they were literally, you mentioned it, they were one of the last teams out of sites that cover this sport closer than we do. They were one of the last teams out. Had yeah. they maybe gotten to the final of the American Conference Championship, they might have been enough. Who knows? But uh, I think the future is bright. they got a young roster coming back. They'll have a lot of guys coming back next year, and yeah. I think they'll be uh, right back in the mix. College tennis ranks had them as the second as the second yeah. team out, and, and th- that ended up being right. Um, golf. So uh, women's golf did not make the NCAA tournament as a team. However, Kaylee Jones did. So she will be playing at the NCAA Tallahassee Regional as an individual. That's coming up May 7th through the 9th up in Tallahassee. So um, keep an eye on that. She was an all-conference selection this year in the American. Men's golf got word uh, today that they are going to the regionals uh, for the second consecutive year. Um they will be hosting the regional at Reunion Resort in Kissimmee, May 14th through the 16th, seventh time that Bryce Waller has sent his team to the NCAA regionals in the nine seasons he's been UCF's head men's golf coach. Um, you remember last year UCF won the regional uh, and, uh, and went to nationals where they tied for 14th place. Um, UCF is obviously coming off a... Uh, third place in the American, but they will be heading to the NCAA uh, regionals once again this year. Um, There are six, by the way, the format, um, and thanks again to um, UCF for having this out and and, and enabling us to to, to understand everything. Kelly Cartner actually wrote this on UCFnights.com. 81 teams. It's not a field of 64. It's 81 teams plus... 45 basically wild card individuals across six NCAA regional championships. The top 30 teams plus six individuals will then go to the cha- the national championship, which is uh, which will be at Stillwater, uh, Oklahoma. UCF right now 59th in the country according to GolfStat.com. Um, They're the number 10 seed heading into the regional. Some of the teams that will be there. Uh, include uh, Vandy, Florida, USF, and Jacksonville State, uh, among others. So, congratulations again to Coach Waller and uh, and UCF for uh, UCF men's golf for uh, going back and getting back to the NCAA's. All right, boys, let's finish this thing out. Um, Brian Murphy, what do you have coming up this week? Uh, baseball. I have a <laughs> article on. Uh, hey, what a shocker! I know. Hold your butt. Stunning. Um, uh, I did not see this. that. I did not see that curveball coming. Did not. You're gonna expect me to say like you know golf or something, which I, I at one point in my life I will cover golf, but the wheelchair and the 18 holes it just doesn't work. Um, 
covering uh, this weekend series against Houston. I do have two things to say about UCF sports. One's good, one's bad. Start with so the bad, please. Do you want the bad news yes. first? Always you want start the with the good bad news first. Bad news first. In UCF football, and you might have seen this tonight already, uh, it was announced by uh, head coach uh, Josh Heupel through the Orlando Sentinel that the uh, offensive guard, sophomore guard, Sam Jackson, has a torn ACL. Oh, uh, Sam, Sam has really transformed his body. Uh, a lot of the players like talked this spring about the, the nutrition aspect of the team has gotten better, even from last year. And Sam has been one of the chief exemplars of that. And Jordan Johnson, the center, said Sam's probably been their best offensive lineman this spring. Uh, he's always done the right thing on tape. He listens really well. And now he's got a torn ACL. They did not say he's out for this season. Uh, I don't know when specifically this injury happened, but he did not play in the spring game. Uh, although I do know that as of like April 4th, uh, it sounded like he was still available because that's when I asked Jordan Johnson about Sam Jackson. It sounded like he was still playing then. So if you imagine he tore his ACL somewhere in April, uh, they have not ruled him out for the season, but it sure would seem like a difficult task for him to come back and play it all the season, which would probably mean they'd kick Jordan Johnson outside to guard, even though he was their full-time center last year. Ooh. And they'd go with like Jordan Johnson uh, on the uh, uh, in guard with Kyle Hoodnick at the other guard. And then the, the tackles would be uh, Wyatt, Wyatt Miller uh, and Jake Brown, who's come back to the program. And then the center would be Cole Schneider. But really, it's a big loss. It's a big loss to this offensive line. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. The good news is, and this is just a small stat, uh, currently, Rylan, Th- Rylan Thomas has the longest uh, single-season on-base streak in school history, which means he has now reached base in 45 consecutive games. Uh, is that that really? is the law. It's yes. really amazing when you think about it. Reach base, reaching base safely in 45 straight is, yeah, in college baseball, is just, it's a spectacular streak. It really, I mean, like I said, baseball is so random and just like there hasn't been a night where he hasn't like drawn a walk or gotten hit by a pitch or gotten a hit. And he really hasn't, you know, smacked the heck out of the ball uh, over the last couple of weeks that he was earlier. Like his average is now down, quote unquote, to 381, Um, (laughs) which, again, it's it's like a 25 point drop from where he was. But but still, he's getting on base. And now it's 45 in a row. It's the longest streak in school history. It's the longest streak in American history for a single season. His uh, his current streak is actually at 53 games. If you go back to last season, um, the former the, the last UCF player to reach base in 44 consecutive games. Actually, the owner, the the, the school owner of both the single season on base record, which was 44 consecutive games. And the all-time consecutive uh, on-base record, which was 65 games, is the same player. He played about, I'd say, 10 or 11 years ago in the middle of this lineup. Can you name him? 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I'm going to go Chris Duffy. Not quite in that era, but maybe even a little earlier, like 2006, 2005. Was it... I can see it. Shane Brown? Was it Shane Brown? That's what I was going to say. Not good. No, it's pretty good though. Kiko Vasquez. Kiko Vasquez oh, had wow. Kiko Vasquez. A, really? Yeah, Kiko Vasquez had a 44-game single-season streak, and then over the course of three seasons, because he actually had a year which was cut short due to injury, he actually had over three quarters of three seasons reached base 65 consecutive games. I would so, not have pegged, I would not have pegged Kiko Vasquez <laughs> as the guy to have that record because I mean. 
I mean, I remember him as a power hitter. You know, I, he was I, a big guy. Yeah, big he was dude. A big dude. So, so wow, that's a that's a great so Ryan, piece right there. Mm. Rylan Thomas is now uh, twelve games behind Kiko for the uh, consecutive on base streak record in school history. There are eleven games left in this regular season, and then of course there's the conference tournament and whatever postseason after that. So at this point, if Rylan keeps on this pace, he would tie Kiko after the first AAC tournament game and pass him on the next game. But we'll see what happens. What's the? Do they know what the NCAA record is? I know that the NCAA record for conse- consecutive games with a hit uh, is 58 by Robin Ventura when he was at uh, Oklahoma State. But I- I'm looking at the NCAA record book. I don't see anything about consecutive games reaching base safely. Do you have any? Uh, uh, have they looked at that yet? Yeah, no. I don't. I have not, and I'm sure. I'm sure our SID Ian McDougall has. So if he hasn't found it, uh, it may not exist. It's, I don't know. It's got to be somewhere in there. I, I know that the Major League Baseball record for consecutive. By the way, this is a really good one. Who holds the Major League Baseball record for uh, for consecutive games reaching base safely? Can you at least give me a decade? Um, nineteen. I don't know the exact. Can you not I'm get? Can you wait? I, is it a Dimaggio? I'm not gonna Dimaggio? say I'm, it's okay. No. Okay, I will give you. I will give you this. It's in Dimaggio's era, but it's not Joe Dimaggio. Okay, so I mean, is it like a terribly obvious answer, like a like a Ted Williams? There you go. That's the answer. Oh, okay. Then never mind. <laughs> it is a terribly obvious answer, like Ted Williams. <laughs> but uh, 84 game base, uh, 84 game <laughs> on base streak. What? Ted Williams. Ted Williams reached base safely 84 consecutive games. Um, this just in, Ted Williams, pretty good at baseball. Yeah, he wasn't bad. Yeah. He missed three years due to, you know, fighting in war. Yeah, he, he flew fighter jets. <laughs> my, favorite story about Ted, my favorite story about Ted Williams was that, it was that he, um, he actually flew, flew alongside, in the Korean War, he flew alongside John Glenn. Okay, first first American in orbit, John Glenn. He flew in the same formation as Ted Williams during the Korean War, and John Glenn said that Ted Williams had the best vision of any pilot he ever flew with. Mm, yeah. That tells you something, right there. So, um, all right, let's pull it back onto the let's pull it back onto the interstate. Eric Lopez, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I know what you're doing this weekend. You're doing the uh, you're doing all the softball games for uh, for, yeah. for the oh, East I'm Carolina looking at games. the NCAA. I'm looking at the NCAA record book in baseball. I have not been able to find consecutive games reached on base. I can tell you that Robin Ventura holds the consecutive games hitting streak at 58. Yeah, 58. 1987. I don't know that he played at Oklahoma State, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I am not. I don't know. I'm wondering if they kept track of that. They may not have kept track of it. I got to believe that Ventura walked a few times. I'm, I would, I would guess that would be the guy that would have the record. But uh, I'm looking. I, right I, I mean, now. I would have thought that Dimaggio would have had the record, the major league record for most consecutive times on on base True. because, or for most consecutive games reaching base safely. Because I know that he, um, but but uh, he didn't reach base in the one in the game that ended the streak, the 56 game hitting streak. But then I know that he had another long hitting streak right after that. But um, anyway, hey, that's neither. Could I say? <laughs> Could I tell you this real quickly? Like I thought initially, like that Ryland's on base streak was actually five games greater than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it could I thought like if we were if we if I didn't know any better, I thought right now he could be at fifty eight because there was a game last year in which he reached on an error that I thought continued oh. the streak. 
that does not continue the streak. Correct. I did not know that. If you reach on air, it's not a yeah, continuous streak, which is kind of weird. Well, it's well. You that's why on, they, wait a minute. You reached on base. I mean, isn't that the whole point of the streak? No, it's it's reaching base safely. In other words, you in other words hit walk hit by pitch. Um, if it's the result of a error. Or if it's the result of a fielder's choice, it doesn't count. Fielder's choice, I'm not even, it's kind of a great right. Yeah. You know, so if you hit into a double play and then you beat it out, technically you didn't reach base safely by that definition. So um, I've, I've had it up to here with baseball's draconian rule book. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad we're all figuring this out for everybody. Um, Lopez, do you have anything else coming up uh, outside of the uh, outside of softball that we should keep? Yes, I got plenty. Uh, we have our own consecutive uh, on base streak, not as big as Ryland Thomas, but uh, Cassidy Brewer is currently on a 19 game consecutive streak reaching base. The uh, believe the record at UCF in softball is Stephanie Best. Uh, 04, I think he had 33 games at one point. So uh, I have that for you, but <laughs> not as, I mean, not as, as great. I, I, you know, unfortunately, I cannot find the consecutive games reach base record in the NCAA, which is kind of perplexing to me. I don't know why that is, but yeah, I'll let other that. people that follow the sport, maybe that, Murph, that's your job. That's in your jurisdiction. That's not mine. So <laughs> uh, you deal with that. I could tell you, yes, I will be calling UCF and East Carolina this weekend at home, final home series. Senior weekend should be emotional. Courtney Roden and Megan Greenwell, of course, part of the 2015 conference champions, that great team that won 50 games. They were part of been part of two NCAA tournament teams. So uh, Megan, in fact, right now currently tied for fifth all time in stolen bases. So great group. And uh, so that'll be great. And then after that, boys, I'm off to Tampa. We'll be calling the American softball championships for the American digital network starting on Thursday, May 10th, four quarter final games, people. Four. That's right. Calling four games in one day. That's going to be interesting. <laughs> so uh, two yeah. semifinals on Friday, the 11th. So I'll be calling all that action. I'll be working with Haley Alton, who will be doing sideline. We'll be doing some pregame stuff, some postgame stuff on the America.org, on the Facebook Live. You name it. So we'll have more details. So actually, next time we do this episode, I'll be calling in from Tampa uh, for a brief cameo. It'll be in the middle of preparation. It'll get everything down for eight teams. Gosh, huh, boy. Well, I know that we. I know that you've got pretty much all of that down, Pat, Eric. So I'm not worried about that one bit. Um, but like I said, it'll be. Uh, it, I mean, the American out in Tampa it should be fun. You've been doing that um, pretty much every year with them as well. So um, safe travels out there. It should be fun. And like I said, we'll have you on. Uh, um, we'll have you on via phone from Tampa to sort of preview things uh, heading into the tournament. So good luck out there. Sounds good. Appreciate it. All right. And, uh, Brian, thank you once again. Uh, as usual, I guess I will be seeing you uh, as well this – or, no, I won't be seeing you as well this No, weekend, you'll never be because seeing UCF me. Is on the, because UCF is on the road. But I will be uh, at that Sunday game, by the way, for UCF softball. I'll be doing PA for the – Oh, then I'll um, see you then before I leave for, for Tampa. That's right. I will, see you in per, I will see you in person there. But in terms of the podcast, I won't see you. Come on, Murph. Just join us week, on Sunday. I know. Just, just, just come on by. It'll be fun. Can I get a – can I get a press pass? Like, I don't want to buy a ticket. Like, is it free admission? Yes, I, you can get a press pass. Just come to the you game can, however you can. Fair warning, though. Like, fair warning. Okay. The, 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 okay, the, so this this Saturday, I, I don't know if you know, but it's, it's dual. It's Cinco de Mayo and the Kentucky Derby. Oh. So let's just say, oh, let's just boy. say... 
actually could be in a bad way on Sunday. I'm not oh, exactly what? sure where I'm going to be. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to well, call you. Just, we're going to have to call and check to us. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to. We're going to have to. We're going to have to call and check on Monday. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks again. Thank you, All Jeffrey. Right. And uh, thank you for listening. This has been the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. For Eric and Brian, I'm Jeff. We'll catch you again next week.